coming up on Ibogaine Uncovered. My God, what is this molecule? How can this be working? And that's why I never gave up on it. Because we saw people rescued. We saw people able to step out of their addiction. And and it wasn't a a silver bullet. It wasn't a cure. It's not. It's what Howard Lutzoff originally said. It's a powerful addiction interrupter. And what one of my favorite ibogonauts told me, that when we would ask the people to describe it, how is this working for you? And he had struggled. Let me preface this comment that he had struggled for over 20 years with uh, heroin addiction, been on methadone maintenance for a very, very long time and could never get off of drugs, had virtually no veins. I mean, we had to put a line in and we had to hunt. This poor man, and um, very smart man, and this worked for him. And he said to me, he said, Ibogaine is the high dive of recovery, but you still have to swim when you hit the pool. My name is Amanda Siebert, and you're listening to Ibogaine Uncovered the podcast that explores the impact of one of the most powerful psychedelic medicines on the planet. Can Ibogaine really get to the root of our trauma? Join me as I ask practitioners, patients, researchers, and specialists about their experiences. Welcome back to Ibogaine Uncovered. I'm your host, Amanda Siebert. In this episode, I interview Dr. Deborah Mash. Dr. Mash is a pioneering researcher of Ibogaine and one of the world's foremost experts on this complicated molecule. She's a professor of neurology and molecular and cellular pharmacology at the University of Miami School of Medicine and the founder and CEO of Demorex, a company developing treatments for opioid use disorder. She's been studying Ibogaine since the early 90s. Given Dr. Mash's knowledge, this is a robust discussion. I had to know how Dr. Mash learned about Ibogaine. She shares the synchronistic events that led to her eventually studying the drug, including her connection to Howard Lotsoff, an early Ibogaine advocate, or ibogonaut, a word I'm borrowing from Dr. Mash. You might remember Mr. Lotsoff from our episode with Dr. Thomas Kingsley Brown. I asked her about the structure of the Ibogaine molecule and what makes it unique from other psychedelics. And then we discussed Dr. Mash's early research, the first clinical studies of Ibogaine in humans between 1996 and 2003. Dr. Mash explains what noribogaine is and what it does after someone has an Ibogaine treatment. We also talk about the fatalities that have been associated with Ibogaine and discuss whether everyone who takes it is at equal risk of death. We end considering the past and the future. How far have we come in terms of reframing our view of substance use disorder? And if Ibogaine was rescheduled, what could the future of treatment look like? In the excitement of the psychedelic renaissance, it can feel like all of this is new. It's often said that there isn't enough research to support the use of Ibogaine in the clinical setting, but I believe Dr. Mash's work is part of a growing body of evidence that proves otherwise. Reconciling her work and the stories you've heard on the show with the fact that Ibogaine is still a Schedule One substance in the United States, meaning it has no medical value and a high potential for abuse, is hard to do. Understanding and working to change drug policy through research is a long game. And it gives me hope to know that experts like Dr. Mash are staying on the field. Dr. Deborah Mash, welcome to Ibogaine Uncovered. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where are you joining me from this morning? I'm joining you from Miami, Florida, which is the location headquarters for our company, Demorex. Awesome. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. You know, you've been studying this medicine for a very long time. I said this before we started recording that it's very rare that I get to speak to someone with this level of expertise on this medicine. So thank you. For our audience, You've been working with this medicine for about 25 or 30 years. Is that correct? Who's counting? Over 30. (laughs) Wow. We had FDA approval to test Ibogaine first in human studies in 1993. And I originally got to this because I had was a new funded investigator with the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I was studying the human brain of people who had come to autopsy. And this was a big shift for me in my academic career, 
I had come to study the human brain after death, doing what we call chemical neuropathology, working in Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative diseases. And now I'm seeing young people come to autopsy. And it really broke my heart. I saw the cocaine epidemic emerging because Miami was on the front end loading of the epidemic. And all of a sudden our city was what was, people thought cocaine champagne, which was a cool, elegant scene, turned into something really dark and full of despair. And that was crack cocaine. And we've got loads of powder. We're the premier transshipment point to the U.S. And then boom, crack. I was working with the Miami-Dade County Medical Examiner Department. And things happen. There was a little bit of synchronicity and serendipity, right? And I'm old enough to have experienced it. So I can say empirically that, you know, I don't know what everything is. But sometimes things align and there's a, a series of, of events. That event pushed me over the top into addiction. I completely changed up my career. Next thing that happened was that we discover coca ethylene. And this was working again with Miami-Dade County Medical Examiner. When you drink and use cocaine, you get this ethyl homolog of cocaine. We had some really good analytical people, some medicinal chemistry guys around me. And I didn't know what co-gathlete was. They taught me about it. And I said, what is it? Draw it on the blackboard, put it in the lab. We figure it out. We get pinged as the Miami Vice metabolite. We get national recognition. I go to the Society for Neuroscience. I'm speaking to my program officer at NIDA. He's going, whoa, Deborah, you've got a lot of publicity going here. And here we go. Next thing I know, um, speaking of the Coalition for a Drug-Free America, a black gentleman came up to me at the microphone and I, you know, Amanda, I will go to my grave with this one because I was very short with this guy. This gentleman was t trying to tell me about some drug from Africa that could be used to help people get off of hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. And I'm looking at him like, what are you talking about? And here I am, I'm, you know, a chi-chi neuroscientist. I'm getting all this publicity for my group, and our team is really rocking and rolling. And this gentleman is really trying to communicate it. I had a group of people around me. My, the president of the University of Miami, Tab Foote, was with me. And I just said, sir, I, I don't know. I appreciate what you're saying to me, but I don't know what you're telling me. Here I am, fast forward 30 years mm -hmm. later. Who was the first one? An African gentleman who put this in line in front of me. The second time I heard about it, I went to the College on the Problems of Drug Dependence, and I was giving another you know, talk and presentation on our work. And I was getting sick of my work. I didn't want to hear about me anymore and my stuff. I was like bored with it already. Been there, done that. And um, I went to sit in the back of a room. It was a cocaine session. And Professor Stanley Glick was up there, and he was feeding Ibogaine to rats that self-administer cocaine and opioids. And these rats stopped taking drugs. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> That's that molecule that that gentleman was trying to tell me about. So now I heard it twice, and then I come back from that, and I had one of these, probably before you were born, old answering machines tapes in my office at the medical school and I play it back and it's Howard Lutzoff who made the seminal discovery of Ibogaine calling me because he wanted to use our work on cocaethylene to support his polydrug dependency pad. Wow. And I said, wait a minute, you're the man behind Ibogaine? You're the one who's advancing this? What is it? How does it work? What's the mechanism of action? Where are your data? What are you up to? And he invited hmm. me to Amsterdam to see it with my own eyes. That's incredible. Things happen in threes, eh? That's quite the series of events. So in that time, you've been studying this drug very consistently in every, every way you can. How would you classify Ibogaine? Is it a psychedelic? Is it dissociative? Does it have anything in common with other psychedelics? That's a great question. You know, how does it fit in the psychedelic space? I asked that same question to the late Sasha Shulgin, 
many years ago when I was presenting at the Esalen Institute. And you know, here was Dr. Shulgin, and I was enamored. I had one of the world experts right in front of me sitting at a table out looking over Big Sur, and I said, how does this fit? <laughs> exactly your question. And he said, well, Deborah, you can put them into four boxes. He said, you got psilocybin, LSD in one box, tryptamines, DMT in them in another box, hallucinogenic amphetamines, MDMA in another box, and you got Ibogaine sitting alone in box number four. So that stayed with me. His guidance stayed with me on that. And I've always thought of Ibogaine as an atypical psychedelic. And I've never taken Ibogaine. And I've said that on publicly and whatnot. It doesn't mean that I might not take it in the mm-hmm. future. But as of today, I have not. You know, I'm not looking at the drug experience compared to other psychedelics I may or may not have taken in my own early childhood days. So I can't say. But what the patients say, what the patients tell us is that it's very different and that it's extreme. And I listen to Rick Doblin, who is like my hero, and he talks about Ibogaine as sort of the big one. <laughs> you know, So mm-hmm. you hear this from people comparing it to other short-acting psychedelics or you know, the empathogen effect of an MDMA experience or the beauty and the, and the spiritual kind of connectivity of a psilocybin experience that Ibogaine is more of an oniric, like waking, the what I have published as a waking dream state, and what others have called it. And the way the descriptions are so vivid of it, when we did the St. Kitts trial, the patients who were desperately seeking a way out of their addiction would come to us so ill, so neurotoxic, so strangled by their addiction, that this was it. For some of them, it really was. It was like, if I can't do this, I'm exhausted, I'm done. I can't get out of my addiction and I can't be in my addiction. Can you imagine? And they would take Ibogaine and it was so powerfully transformative for them. And I thought, my God, what is this molecule? How can this be working? And that's why I never gave up on it. Because Mm. we saw people rescued. We saw people able to step out of their addiction. And and it wasn't a a silver bullet. It wasn't a cure. It's not. It's what Howard Lutzoff originally said. It's a powerful addiction interrupter. And what one of my favorite ibogonauts told me that when we would ask the people to describe it, how is this working for you? And he said, you know, Dr. Match, he said, I began as, and he had struggled, let me preface this comment, that he had struggled for over 20 years with uh, heroin addiction, been on methadone maintenance for a very, very long time and could never get off of drugs, had virtually no veins. I mean, we had to put a line in and we had to hunt this poor man, and um, very smart man, and this worked for him. And he said to me, he said, Ibogaine is the high dive of recovery, but you still have to swim when you hit the pool. Ooh, I like that. Me too. That's incredible. Wow. I love how you, you said you didn't give up on it. I mean, how can you when you are witnessing how it works in people's lives? And that those stories don't get old. I mean, I'm not a researcher or a scientist, but as a writer, speaking with people about their experiences with Ibogaine in particular, there's something about it. It gives me chills every time. What can you tell us about the structure of Ibogaine and how this molecule works in the body? Ibogaine is an indole alkaloid. So what does that mean? So indole is serotonin-like. So when you first look at the molecule, you go, ha ha, <laughs> there's serotonin, which is the a magic neurotransmitter in the brain, one of the big ones, one of the monoamine neurotransmitters in the brain. That's linked to, of course, depression and anxiety. And also one of the neurotransmitters that you know is activated by LSD and psilocybin, et cetera. And then it's also an alkaloid coming from Mother Nature. So it's interesting. Mother Nature gives us these addicting alkaloids. And here's the antidote to addiction, right? Kind of another alkaloid from Mother Nature that can reset things. 
The chemistry of ibogaine is very complicated, but what I have zeroed in on as a neurochemist, neuropharmacologist, is the similarity to ketamine-like effects and serotonin-like effects. So those, I think, are two drivers of the, perhaps the oniric experience, actually. Now, the other thing that's very interesting, and this is work that has come out of publications out of Brazil who have looked at sleep. And way back when I was talking to Howard Lutzoff and his entourage, they told me Ibogaine is a remagen. Remagen. And I thought, remagen. So you're telling me that the dreamlike state is like a lucid dream, right? When you have one of these really profound dreams and you wake up and you're, whoa, and you're kind of like still in it. This is how they described it. And I thought, well, but that's interesting because what that suggests is that there may be a reset between sleep state in the brain and waking consciousness. And as with many psychedelics, especially LSD, for example, you kind of trip a switch and then, you know, the journey begins. So it could be that Ibogaine does something similar to like this, but we don't know yet. You can't do functional MRI while you're in, in an Ibogaine state, and we can talk about why not. But so far, we can't do it. But you could do some EEG work. And I think the group at Imperial and others are very interested in doing that. And I think that would illuminate whether this is a mechanism. I mean, we really don't know. And then add on the importance of noribogaine, which, of course, we characterized for the first time. And I've always been interested in that molecule as an active metabolite. And it's kind of like, a, you know, phase one of the rocket and then phase two of the rocket. And the noribogaine is phase two. I'm excited to get into noribogaine with you in a moment. But I want to ask, why can't you use an MRI when you're doing an ibogaine? experience. Why are these tests sort of more difficult? Yeah, because the dark side of ibogaine, I'll put it that way, is that it's activating the brain, but it also has effects on the heart. So you need to have people under full cardiac monitor, especially when you're at the high, when you're in the high doses. And because of the rare one-off, I believe it's rare, one-off of that, a chance that somebody is going to have a an adverse reaction to ibogaine that we've read about and has been published on, although the causality assessment is never there, because why? They didn't measure the drug in the blood. They don't know what the drug was. They don't even know what other drugs, toxicology, drug interactions may be there. We don't know if the individual had some underlying cardiac risk. And it could even be a genetic risk. As we learn more, I'm a genomic, I participated and grew up in the genomic revolution, and we're learning so much about risk alleles for QT prolongation. So Ibogaine affects repolarization reserve in the heart. You've got people hooked up to cardiac monitors, and you can't put all that stuff in the scanner. So it would be hard. It would be hard from a safety perspective, and that's always the first and primary However, I think there are people doing really excellent work. What I'm hearing, I haven't seen the papers yet, out of Stanford, is that there's some phenomenal data that's being gathered from the veterans who have elected to participate in the research. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Let's get into some of your research. So you conducted the first clinical studies on Ibogaine in St. Kitts between 1996 and 2003. What were some surprising things that you were able to demonstrate in your research at that time? Yeah, it was all a surprise. <laughs> so many. <laughs> it, was, it was so many surprises because nobody knew anything, right? That was, that was it. Howard Lutzoff and his team had open-label observational data, sort of. I don't know if we call it data, but you know, they had empirical evidence that the drug was effective, but they didn't have any of the blood levels of ibogaine or the active metabolite, they knew nothing about dose response, put it that way. And we figured out very early, and again, this is another collab, most of these things that I get credit for were directed by others. So I'll just say that right out front. And 
we had been working with Scott Aubach, who was heading up the metabolism division at Pfizer. Brilliant young guy. And then Rachel Tyndale, who was the queen of cytochrome P450-2D6. And I had heard Rachel present at a scientific meeting. You know, here's this incredibly talented, beautiful young woman up on the stage talking about her work with CYP2D6, this liver enzyme. And I, I said, oh my God, I got to talk to her. So I, after that, I walked all the way from the back to the front and I asked her to help me. And she was very gracious and very kind. And she did. And she looked at it and she goes, oh, that's 2D6 metabolism. So we actually, in St. Kitts, genotyped. And she did all of that work. We did retrospect. So we didn't genotype them coming in, but we took blood samples and went to her laboratory. She genotyped. And we were able to demonstrate the fast, slow, and intermediate metabolizers. So that led to the publication about Ibogaine complex pharmacokinetics, concerns for safety, and preliminary efficacy publication out of the St. Kitts cohort. Yeah. So that was important because from a safety and an exposure standpoint, and then the other thing is, you know, God has a sense of humor. The first six patients that go into St. Kitts, we had fast, slow, and intermediate. Why is this unique? Because slow metabolizers is a small percentage. So it's luck of the draw. And in the first six, we had the whole picture. So we knew that the visionary experience of Ibogaine was tied to the length of time that Ibogaine stayed high in the blood. And when the curves crossed over so that noribogaine then became higher than the Ibogaine and Ibogaine was starting to wash out, boom, the vision stopped abruptly. So th- wow. this was, yeah, this was really wow. And you could actually, because I looked at all the data, of course, and mm-hmm. I could phenotype you based on length of time that you were under, you know, when the masks, when the eye shields came off, because you could time that to when the C-max for noribogaine occurred in the blood. So the maximal concentration of noribogaine, you could time it because this, the patients would start to move around. When they're heavy under the eye game, nobody move, nobody moves, right? You're you know, plastered. And we had the, the headphones and the eye shields on. I mean, they were so down under the eye game experience that I, I was like, oh, my God. It's like Elvis has left the building. I would go and I'd look at the cardiac monitors. The nurses were monitoring everything in the room. Doctor was there. I'd watch the cardiac monitor. And I was like, whoa. Nobody's even moving. And I remember one time taking the headphone off and I spoke to one of the patients and I said, how are you doing? I said, it's Dr. Mash. You okay in there? I said, going great. I said, okay, go back. (laughs) So, but, so that was one thing. The other thing that was amazing, of course, was, you know, the patient narratives and we were able to monitor the safety of the drug in St. Kitts, which we did. Mm-hmm. And the FDA was concerned about cerebellar effects because of the ataxia of gait. I mean, yes, when you're under a full psychedelic experience, you really don't walk very well. Nobody should be getting up out of bed, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. there was a publication by a Hopkins group. The Hopkins group, you know, were the group that said MDMA was neurotoxic, right? And then had to withdraw the paper and all those things. All right. Well, the colleague down the hallway, probably, who also had contracts from NIDA, uh, put up a neurotoxic flag on Ibogaine very early. What does that mean? Well, they tried to say that Ibogaine in high doses caused cerebellar neurotoxicity. Hmm. Mm. That came out at my first open meeting with the FDA. And actually, that's another really interesting story because the scientist was Mark Molliver. He's deceased and another set of coincidences. But he goes up there at the meeting and I had gotten a call from the FDA about this, that when we had already gotten permission from the FDA to test that, oh, Ibogaine may be, Dr. Mash, have you had the Miami Group dose patients yet? And I spoke to Dr. Dan Spiker, who was my medical safety officer. I said, no, Dr. Spiker, we have not. We're proceeding very, you know, cautiously and slowly. We're setting up the protocols and we'll be in the clinic very soon. He said, well, you know, Deborah, we heard something that there's a neurotoxicity with Ibogaine. And I said, well, we'll stop. We'll wait. Meanwhile, I had 
gone to St. Kitts, where I had been working with the late Frank Irvin, Dr. Irvin, who trained my mentor at Harvard, was down there. And I, again, another coincidence, I had been down in St. Kitts, remember my cocaine alcohol connection. I was doing alcohol work at a primate colony in St. Kitts. That's how I got to St. Kitts. And Frank was a brilliant biological psychiatrist. And when I brought some funding there, I had some funding from the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse. And when I brought money there to do some monkey work, I said, you know, I have this Ibogaine thing. The FDA is working with me. We're not going to be able to fund it in the U.S. I want to continue. Will you give me some monkeys so we can look at neurotox in the primates? And we did the monkeys. We didn't see it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that wasn't done by me. I mean, we dosed the animals there. I had veterinarians there and everything. And then we brought the brain tissue back to Miami and a brilliant neuropathologist on the faculty did the work and read, they read the slides, you know, blinded. And he came back, he said, nothing. He said, you've got nothing in here. This is clean. So we said, whoa, you know, well, that's kind of strange. What is Molliver seeing in the rat? And then God has a sense of humor. I'm the former founder and director uh, the University of Miami Brain Endowment Bank, one of the largest postmortem collections by repositories of donated brains for medical research. And when Howard Lutzoff left, I said, Howard, you need to do Ibogaine in a hospital setting. How about this? I have a colleague who's contacted me in Panama, Panama City, Panama. He'll give you a wing of a hospital do your Ibogaine in the hospital there. And we can make it even better than that. You bring them into Miami. We'll evaluate them at University of Miami first. They'll go down to Panama. They'll take Ibogaine under full medical monitor and get some bloods. They'll come back to Miami. We'll evaluate them and they'll go home and we'll follow patients. We'll give that data to the FDA. So Howard did that. And I got the hospital informed consent, the clinician. I set him up down there with that. And a young woman subject NH, who had taken Ibogaine four times. She detoxed, she had a very brilliant young woman, an accountant, very brilliant, struggled, had major trauma in her life, whatnot. You know the story, got to opiates, opiates were her self-medication, and then she was very strung out on dope. She had detoxified with Howard in the Netherlands, stayed clean for a whole year, and then relapsed. So now I had Howard in Panama. So she went to Panama. So when the kids would come through, when young people would, they were kids to me, when they came through to go to Panama, we were doing MRIs on them. So they would come in and they'd go into the MRI scanner. And I remember sitting out there at the scanner. I had two young people there that were going to go down to Panama with Howard. And I was sitting out there before they went into the MRI scanner, they were smoking. And I said, you're ibogonauts. And we have the safety issue. I would like you to consider donating your brain. God forbid anything happens, would you donate your brain? And what happened with subject NH is that she went down there, took Ibogaine, came back. We did the evaluation on her. She went home and she called me up a couple of weeks later, three weeks later, and she said, Dr. Mesh, I want to get out of New York. I don't want to be around the people, places, and things. I want to get out of here. And I've got a friend who will set me up in Fort Lauderdale. Can I volunteer? Can I do some work for you? And I said, you come on down. Come on down. And I said, I'll find something for you to do with me. No problem. You can come hang with us and work. And I got a call from Norma Lutzoff on, she, what happened was she, had eaten sushi on a Thursday, and she got on an airplane, came down to Fort Lauderdale, started vomiting, and was very sick that evening. And the next day, she died. And I got a call from Norma Lutzoff, and she said, she's dead, and and I said, where is she? And she was in Fort Lauderdale, the Broward County Medical Examiner. And I know all the MEs, right? I know the medical examiners. So I picked up the phone. I called the doctor and I said, hi, this is Dr. Nash. You have a decedent there. Her name is, her date of birth is. I have a complete chart on her this thick. She took an experimental drug. May I show up at the autopsy? And he said, yes. 
Wow. Oh, um, my goodness. That one really bothers As you can tell, I'm... Mm-hmm. That's, that's that one bothers me a lot. Yeah. But anyway, I went with my one of my postdocs there, and we were present for the autopsy. I provided data back to the doctors, and I said, you know, we need to know because I need to report this to the FDA. If there's any indication this is any way connected to Ibogaine, we need to know. And also, because there has been this discussion about neurotoxicity, would you allow me, the University of Miami doctors, to do the neuropath? We'll provide you the report. And I had a great reputation with doctors. I'm not bragging. I, they knew <laughs> me to be solid, that we would do the right thing. Um, I actually carried her brain back to the University of Miami, processed it for neuropathology and whatnot. And her brain did not have neuropathology. And that information was shared with the FDA. But I'll tell you, what a day. And and by the way, her death was due to natural causes unrelated to Ibogaine. So again, the importance of what I'm very interested in today is real-world evidence. So many people are taking Ibogaine. And we need to gather that data. We need to get, learn more from the people who are taking Ibogaine in whatever setting they're taking it. Absolutely. I want to ask you about the deaths associated with Ibogaine since we're on this topic. So people always want to know about, about these deaths. Why have deaths occurred when people sometimes use Ibogaine? And could they have been prevented? And I would say a, a second part of this question is, is everyone at equal risk of death when they use Ibogaine? That's a great question. Thank you for that question. So... Yes. Let me go back to other psychedelics. So if you look at other psychedelics, I mean, they have a very wide safety margin. Every drug has a safety margin. Some drugs have a very wide safety margin. Some drugs have a more narrow safety margin. It's like cancer drugs, right? They're designed to do something to bad cells in the body without harming the good cells in the body. So you've got a very narrow window with oncology drugs, the older onco drugs. With Ibogaine, it's a narrow window, I believe. So you've got to be in the window. And people were taking all kinds of doses of Ibogaine. I mean, really big doses that were... Put the, putting them in the toxic range. I mean, that happened to Howard Letzoff with a person who he gave three doses to. So you give one dose, then you wait a while, and you give another dose, and then you wait a while, and you give another dose. No, that's bad. And I have written about that because what you're doing, because you have norivigane there, you've got two molecules, and you're increasing the area under the curve of the norivigane. And so the person who passed away under the watch of Howard Lutzoff should never have died. No way. She was totally healthy. He just accidentally gave her too much. And that was that one. Because the drug was pure. They meant well. There was no, nobody meant to hurt, hurt anybody. It was just yeah. they didn't know. And remember, I said they didn't know dose response in terms of the amount of ibogaine or ibogaine in the blood. Okay, that, so that's number one. Don't take too much of the drug. Number two, drug-drug interactions. I explained to you about complex pharmacokinetics. Drugs that interact with ibogaine, okay, that's going to mess up the concentrations in the blood. You've got a narrow therapeutic window. You can get in the toxic range. If someone comes into it to an ibogaine treatment with opiates in their system, what can happen? Opiates are, are okay. You know, I don't, I don't want to talk about fentanyl right now, but if you do okay. short-acting opiates, they're going to wash out. And if you take, and we did this in St. Kitts, so we have people coming to us with methadone and morphine, but morphine is very short-acting, and methadone has a longer half-life, but you can wash it out, transition to a short-acting opiate, and then you take your last dose at night. By the next morning when you're coming in, you're starting to show early signs of withdrawal. You take your ibogaine, you're fine. And then you're, you, know, you can time it. I have a, a chapter that's in press now that will be coming out where I really illustrate this graphically to try to make the point. 
the severity. So that's not it. It's all the other pharmaceuticals, you know, antidepressants and other other medications that can really affect ibogaine. Then you have drugs that cause QT prolongation. For example, methadone. Methadone causes QT prolongation. So if you have QT prolongation with ibogaine, QT prolongation with less so, but with noribogaine, and you have methadone on board, now you got a whole lot of QT prolongation. Mm. Not good. Yeah. Can you explain yeah. briefly what QT prolongation is, what that means for someone? It's who's the way the ventricles, it's repolarization of the heart and it's heart rate. It's dependent on the heart rate. So what happens is you will normal have a normal period of, okay, beat, beat to beat, and then the heart does its thing and then it resets. You start to expand the interval and now you can have a problem where you can have abnormal beats. So it'll lead to an arrhythmia and it can okay, be so a life-threatening arrhythmia. Gotcha. So that's what people are talking about when they say there's heart issues or potential complications when it comes to Right. Diabetes. We described, there were two things that the, what we saw in St. Kitts early, which I published on early on what, as a concern for cardiovascular safety was we saw this in polydrug dependent people who were co-abusing smoking free base or crack and also doing opioids. So they were duly, you know, coming off two things. And we saw some blood pressure and bradycardic effects. And that's scary because you drop your heart rate and you drop your blood pressure and ooh, ooh, that's bad. Now, when I had our cardiology consultant down in St. Kitts, we figured that out very, very quickly because those patients were volume depleted. So in other words, cocaine will dry you out. So we put fluids up. You can put fluids up and you can increase the blood volume. So after we learned about that, we figured that out. Everybody got fluids before I began. So that's easy. The other thing is magnesium. And I've taught this to people all over the place going magnesium. And I had early on done the reading because I was afraid of, I've learned more cardiology than I ever wanted to know in my life with this drug, but I needed to. The bradycardia could lead to a bradyarrhythmia, a bradyarrhythmia. And I was scared of that. And so I had our cardiologists there and others. And I said, shouldn't we be giving magnesium to these people? And after that, it was mag in the bag, <laughs> two grams of magnesium in the bag, and then we ran magnesium during the course of treatment. And that's a, that's a no-brainer because people who, again, come into, this is the point of who's getting detoxed or coming in for detox or coming off a hard dope run. You're not well. You're sick. Yeah. And so you need to be 100% certain that, you've, that somebody you know, is fit to take Ibogaine. You need to look at their cardiology, their labs, and you need to kind of tank them up a little bit before they take the drug with fluids, with magnesium, with protein, and, you know, get people ready for that. So I think some people just thought, well, you can just come into a hotel room and get a dose of Ibogaine and good luck. And that, then people got into trouble when that happened. So you've developed a bit of a protocol around how to prepare someone if their body is perhaps not in the best state going in. I want to move into Nori again. You've mentioned this metabolite a couple of times, and to me, this is one of the most fascinating components of this drug. So you're credited with discovering Nori again, which is the active metabolite in Ibogaine. What is it, and what does it do after someone takes Ibogaine? So there are many drugs that have active metabolites, right? Mm-hmm. And a good example of that is tramadol which has a, a, what we call a phase one metabolite, which is liver metabolism. So noridogene is formed in the gut and the liver, and it has its own pharmacology. It's a new, what we would call a new chemical entity. It's a, a new molecule distinct from ibogaine. So noridogene doesn't cause the visions, no unmeric effects with noridogene. And we know this because we've given noridogene as the sole agent to patients, to subjects and patient volunteers. In Demrex, we've done that in clinical trials. The pharmacology of noribogaine to me is really very interesting because it's a serotonergic, it's an, an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, 
but it, it interacts with the transporter in a kind of a unique way. And I, you know, it was funny because when I started out my master's degree, I'd been, I was very interested in beta endorphin, endorphin serotonin interactions. And nor ibogaine is an atypical, has some opioid like effects, but it's a kappa, it's acting on primarily the kappa opioid receptor. And I think that's important for withdrawal dysphoria and the resetting of opioid tone in the brain. And then it has this really profound serotonin effect. And then Stan Glick had talked about this nicotinic signal that's in the brain that kind of puts the brakes on reinforcement. And norivagine has more, higher potency at that site than his molecule, 18-methoxychlorinardine-18-MC. We've run it in the laboratory side by side. So I think Stan hit on something very important there. So norivagine is, is hitting, it's like a polypharmacology. No, it is a polypharmacology drug. But it's hitting unique targets that are in the addiction circuitry. Okay, so let's say I come in for a treatment and people talk about the fact that this metabolite stays in the body for a period of time. What does that sort of enable someone to do? Let's say someone who's come in to help overcome substance use disorder or opiate use disorder. What does that norabigine enable them to do after the treatment? It extends the window. Who would imagine that you could give one dose of ibogaine and reset years of wreckage in the brain, right? I mean, I didn't. Yeah. I can tell you that. I, I did not. I did not. Mm. But you see it, you know, seeing is believing. You, you're watching someone go through the ibogaine and you see it having this rapid open label efficacy. You're like, whoa. You know, I can remember Dr. Irvin come to me with the second round of subjects in St. Kitts and glasses down on his eyes and he said, well, Deborah, it blocks opioid withdrawals. <laughs> he was fascinated by it because he's a total skeptic, biological skydress mm. skeptic, new hour was wow. Yeah, he said, like, this is not going to work. <laughs> but he saw it work. So then my mentor and, and beloved colleague said to me, yeah, this works still. Wow. So the norovian, what was interesting to us, because in St. Kitts, we were living together, right? So we would have grounds of subjects coming down there, patients in residence there. So we got to see them before the ibogaine, during the ibogaine, and then immediately after the ibogaine, and then for a, like a week out. And they would come to me and they would say, what's in me today? This is two days later. What's in me today? I feel really good. And of course, I knew what was in there. Those norovian. And so mm -hmm. we saw them. They, they were like low worms. They all were like sitting by the pool, feeling good. And the thing was, they didn't jump over the fence to go get high. They didn't leave. That was the thing that used to, we had security and everything, but you know, <laughs> I always was worried people in the middle yeah. of the night would just go, we're going downtown to get some drugs. Didn't happen. They stayed. Mm, that wow. didn't happen. And so that, that was amazing. You know, that was like, oh my God, there's really something to this. And then the clinical aspect. So I stayed away. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have any experience in this. So I distanced myself from all of that. However, I had clinicians and psychologists there. And we had a ratio of like one to four, one to three. So it was intense. The psychologists were the ones who were a lot of fun because they were doing the clinical phenotyping before they took the ibogaine and then, you know, developing an aftercare plan. And what was going to be different this time? Don't assume that you're not going to swim when you hit the water. So you've got to work your program. And, and the clients, we had a, a counseling unit where the counselors set up shop. And the patients would go in their group meetings and their individual meetings in that unit. And it was really cool because we put up, the counselors would put up pieces of big white paper on the wall with their name on the top. And I'm making a face and laughing to myself because I can see it. And they'd write their names on it. And before they would take Ibogaine, there would be like nothing written on the paper. Like one thing. And it, it, it was always the same thing. I'm not going to meetings. Except there was a word in front of it. I'm not going to blank meetings. <laughs> 
And I'm, I'm listening to this. They would come and they tell me this. And I'd go, look, hey, I don't care if you go to meetings or not. You're here because you want to get, you want to change it up. I have no judgment. You want to go out and use dope? Go. It's your life. It's your life, baby. Hmm. And that's how I, that was the kind of, you know, mother of Ibogaine that I was because I was a scientist. I'm looking at this. I'm stepping back. I've never taken the drug. We're describing it. You want to stay locked into your thing, but this is a window. You've got, you're getting a, you're getting a gift. Make the most of it. I'm not going to any of F means. Uh, okay, cool. After the I began Amanda, the papers would fill up. Swear wow. to God. I don't doubt Just, it. Oh, my God. I mean, oh, my God. And again, like I did not get involved. I let the patients and the clinicians work together. And I was arguing for norivigain, too. I said, we don't need the visions. We're going to develop norivigain as the sole agent of be a pharmaceutical. Big pharma will be interested in it. And the psychedelic molecule, bye. My counselors would come to me and go, no way, Dr. Mesh, you can't do that. This is transformative, right? But back then, who talked about that? Not too many people. So I thought, well, it's engaging the frontal lobe. And I remember telling one of the NIDA program officers at a college on the problems of drug dependency, it's engaging the frontal lobes. Now we know psychedelics engage the frontal lobes. And then they would sit in their Ibogaine group. They would have an an official Ibogaine group. After everybody had their chemical bar mitzvah with the Ibogaine, all (laughs) new and clean, they would then share their journey. And we had, I had a, uh, the music, you know, we didn't have a, the Johns Hopkins playlist back then, the mm-hmm. Spotify that you could download. We didn't have that. So we had the Dr. Mash playlist of Dr. Mash's journey, live game journey music. You should and, dig that up and release it on a Spotify. <laughs> yeah, you're funny. <laughs> yeah, we love the John Hopkins playlist. We're grateful. Mm. So I had found music at one of my conferences and and I was, where was I? Somewhere in Denmark or something. And I bought the CD-ROM and it was Welcome Ohm. Welcome Ohm. Ohm, you know. And the music of it, I listened to it and I went, this is is perfect for either game. (laughs) So it was the first thing they would hear. And some people report that they hear that you know, it's probably activation of the cerebellum, by the way, that the they hear like a kind of wah, 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 wah kind of sound. Yeah. yeah. So this was kind of the own thing was in this thing. So, okay. So I had the CD-ROM map. When we went back into, after everybody had done the Ibogaine and we went back into the Ibogaine group, we played the music at the beginning of the group and then they would share their journey. I would be outside working, collecting data, cleaning up the clinic, putting the blood samples away, that kind of stuff, the boring thing. And I'm looking around going, where is everybody here? And they said, they're in group. And I'm looking at my watch going, what? They're in group? They've been in group for hours. Wow. Where are they? People that said they weren't going to go to any effing meetings. No, well, they were going to meetings. And why weren't they outside smoking? Yeah. Because if you go to rehab... <laughs> Everybody's out of the group and outside smoking. And our guys and girls and St. Kitts were in the, were working it. So when you ask me what gets me excited, all that pharmacology, all those receptors, the metabolism, the identification of metabolite, but this. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd imagine that would really light a fire. And I mean, it clearly has. You've been doing this for a long time. So how have your objectives changed? You just mentioned that potentially we could decouple noribogaine and these sort of psychedelic effects. Tell me a little bit about that. I would love to hear about that. So the noribogaine, originally when we started in St. Kitts, I had thought that what we wanted to do was to allow people to have the Ibogaine initiation. It's a radical way to stop taking drugs. Think about it, right? And it you need that. Maybe you really need that. Maybe you need that. And maybe, and we knew that the visions were of therapeutic relevance to the people, right? Because they taught us that. 
And they got insights into why, you know, what were they self-medicating? What were the traumas? They got insight. And it was as if the molecule was teaching them somehow, I don't know how this could be, but it was showing them or teaching them something about, here's the road ahead. You can go this way. You can go this way. It's your choice. And ultimately, it is your choice. But you have to regain your locus of control. So that's the Ibogaine. All right. But they also, Ibogaine and Noribogaine both turn on growth factors in the brain. And we're going to learn more about this as the publications come out of Stanford is that window of neuroplasticity, and this is super exciting, and that's a, throw this on the table is super exciting, for psychedelics as a class, because they turn on plasticity in the brain. And what is addiction? What is addiction? It's plasticity gone wrong. Okay? Can Ibogaine repair the brain, nor Ibogaine continue that, because there's good evidence that noribogaine is the psychoplastogen. And this is a word that was coined by Dave Olson at Delex, who's a brilliant, a brilliant pharmacologist and really advancing the next generation of ibogaine analogs with his company. He's a co-founder. And I love his word psychoplastogen because we know from seminal work of from the Gallup Institute and Dorit Ron that she was one of the first looking at alcohol-taking rats and described the effects of ibogaine and noribogaine on GDNF, glial-derived neurotrophic factors. So we know the psychedelics act on brain-derived, and that's the serotonin pathway, but now we have the addiction pathway. All roads lead to the neurotransmitter dopamine. I like to call it the National Institute of Dopamine, NIDA, <laughs> N-I-D-A, D-A for dopamine. God knows I published in the dopamine space for many years with many wonderful young scientists. You got you got a winner. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, Noribogaine has its place. Ibogaine has its place. So let's commercialize. Let's fast forward. How would you give Ibogaine? You give Ibogaine in a hospital setting. I think there are hospitals that will be setting up these psychedelic suites. You take Ibogaine under full medical monitor. And a hospital can handle an adverse event. No problem. No problem. And then you hold them so they can take Ibogaine under full medical monitor in a safe way. And then you're ready to go into transition into whatever it is you're going to transition. If you're going to go back on opiates, you can go back on opiates. You want to go on buprenorphine long term. It's very hard to detoxify a patient that they can even go on to buprenorphine. It takes some four to five weeks before you can come on sublocade, right? To be stabilized where you can get go on. So no, Ibogaine could be useful for people who want to have an option. You don't think you can live life without an opioid in your blood? Here you go. We're going to interrupt your addiction. We're going to stabilize you. And now you'll be ready to go. The doctor can prescribe how about you want to go on naltrexone? How about you want to go on an, an antagonist? Many people cannot come off opioids. They can't tolerate it. Withdrawal dysphoria. Ibogaine short circuits that through Ibogaine and Noribogaine. You can go fast. So you can transition patients off of hard drugs onto naltrexone and an antagonist, and they can tolerate the antagonist, again, extend the window. Okay. So if this drug is ever rescheduled, you're seeing it sort of in that sort of treatment within the existing model, it's like a, a sort of a first step for folks. Gotcha. That's I great. I was, that was going to be my next question is if this drug is rescheduled, how would you see it within the model? So that's wonderful. I have one last question for you, Dr. Mash, and thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and your wisdom. And th- this question is a little bit more, it's less about the pharmacology and more about the general space. But I read an interview with you that was connected in 1996. And at that time, you said you hated the word addict and you were talking about the stigma associated with that word. When it comes to clinical research around substance use, how far have we come in terms of reframing our view of substance use disorder? It's a great question. You ask great questions. Thank you. Not far enough. Yeah, not far enough. I look at the problem, look at the problem in our country today, right? 
I mean, this is a major crisis. And we just had, you go to San Francisco, the mayor of San Francisco just discussed the pain that his city is under because of the fentanyl crisis. Fentanyl is a chemical weapon attack on our country. That is a bad molecule. And it's intentional. The number of deaths, it's like a plane crash a day. Wouldn't the FAA be all up in arms if we had a plane crash a day in the United States? That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I I live in Vancouver, Canada, and it's awful up here too. I mean, everyone I know has at least one or two or three folks in their life, family members, friends that have passed away. It's like, we hear every day, Amanda, and Scotland is getting hit. I just came back from breaking convention and Scotland is hit. They reached out to me and said, you, you've got to bring Ibogaine into Scotland. We can't handle this. We need help here. I want the government to, you know, come on. I'm, a, I'm getting old. I'm tired. This has been a really uphill battle. But we need to think outside the box. We have to look for transformative solutions. Ibogaine can be given safely. People are desperate for it. Families demand it. People are sick and tired of having their children die. It's not enough. I'm glad we have the new molecule being released to protect people from fentanyl overdose. Okay, that's coming out. Narcan is getting distributed. We need something else. We need something bigger and bolder, and we need it now. And, and, you know, right now I have nothing to lose. I didn't go into this because I wanted to get rich or make a name for myself or anything. People are dying. Families are disruptive. The cost, the economic burden to our society is huge. We can't afford it. This is the United States of America. We need to bring our family back together. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. That's, that is the message that people need to hear. And I'm really grateful that you're here to speak that because it's true. The suffering is immense. I think over 100,000 people die a year in the United States of overdose. And who knows, there's probably more that the medical examiners... Probably more. I think it was 106. The medical examiner's corners don't even... They miss things. So I know. Well, Dr. Mash, I guess to end this on a positive note, what do you see next for Ibogaine? What's on your to-do list, I guess, in this sort of fight that you're, you've just mentioned, how are you sort of right now working to bring this medicine to? Well, the advancement for Ibogaine, of course, was the collaboration with the Thai Life Sciences. And I didn't fail to mention that at the beginning mm-hmm. of the talk, but they are the ones who are paying for the clinical trial. Okay. We need to do, my, my feeling right now is two things. We need to get in front of the FDA quickly with Ibogaine. The FDA has always been collaborative with me, my experience, these are very good people who want to do the right thing and want to help. And we need to get in front of them and talk to them. We need to show them the safety data. and We need to get their guidance and support. ATI has given us the funding, which you can't, that was always a critical, that was mm-hmm. a, on the critical path for me that I couldn't raise, you know, public dollars. But I think we need a public-private joint venture to fully accelerate this. And then I think their missed opportunity here is real world evidence. I think that there's a lot of information coming out of the active Ibogaine clinics and working together with Ohio State University and Dr. Davis, who's heading that up, and also work that's coming out of some of my academic collaborators at Nova Southeastern, that we're going to be able to open up a registry of people who've taken Ibogaine and ask them to tell us about their experience. So stand by, that's coming. Real world evidence, accelerated path, working with our colleagues at the regulatory level in the FDA and MHRA in the UK and Health Canada. Let's go. (laughs) That is so exciting. That gives me hope. That gives me hope. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show, for telling us about your work for the work that you're doing. And I hope that we can chat again once we've got some updates on that research document. I look forward to it. Thank you for your excellent questions and thank you for the work that you do as well. You've been listening to Ibogaine Uncovered. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify and Apple, leave a review, or share it with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by Beyond and produced by Eamon Armstrong, mixed by Trevor Coulter and edited by Ariel Villafane. Beyond is the world's premier network of medically-based Ibogaine treatment facilities for addiction, depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Beyond's mission is to help people end chemical and behavioral dependency and to end the suicide epidemic with psychotherapeutic treatment and psychedelic plant medicine innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical advice and does not necessarily reflect Beyond's views on mental health treatment or personal development. For inquiries and further information, please visit beyondibogaine.com and make an inquiry using the web form or email beyond at hello at beyondibogaine.com.